This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Every year, hundreds of thousands of students from all over the world come to the United States to study at American colleges and universities. When they graduate with highly specialized and coveted degrees, many of them want to live and work here. They want to stay here. But only about 23% of foreign students who obtain master's degrees in the U.S. end up staying. And for those who get bachelor's degrees, that number is just 11%. And remember, those numbers are far lower than the number of people who want to stay in the United States. So why is the U.S. training and educating so many people in jobs we so desperately need and then just letting them leave? In the meantime, countries like Canada, the U.K. and Australia are poaching these U.S. trained and educated folks to work in places like London, Toronto and Sydney. Well, John Marcus is a higher education editor and reporter at the Heckinger Report, and he's reported about this particular brain drain in an article headlined, With New Talent Visas, Other Countries Lure Workers Trained at U.S. Universities. And we've got a link to it at onpointradio.org. And John joins us here in the studio today. Welcome to On Point, John. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, so give me some more specific numbers about how many uh, foreign students we're talking about at the undergraduate and graduate level. Well, about a million foreign students come to the United States every year. And we educate them at every level, including at the graduate level. And um, it's very hard for them to stay. They can stay after they graduate through something called an OPT or optional practical training visa that lets them stay for from 12 to 36 months, depending on their major. Uh, Then they have to get an H-1B, which is Mm. very, very hard, and an employer sponsor. The result of which is that not all of them, but many of them have skills in uh, in areas like computer science and electrical engineering, which are in very high demand in the United States and for which we produce very few domestic graduates, American graduates. And so we're, we need these students, but we make it really hard for them to stay. Yeah. So about those uh, graduate level computer science and uh, electrical engineering degrees, in your article, you have a fact that just made my eyes pop out. What percentage of folks are foreign-born in those graduate programs? It is amazing. My eyes popped out, too. Eighty percent of graduate students in computer science and electrical engineering are foreign-born. Only one in five students at the graduate level in those fields in the most important kinds of subjects in a knowledge economy, only one in five of them are American. And as you've seen in the last few weeks, math scores in the K-12 level in America are getting even worse. And so we're just not producing people that know math. Math is a prerequisite for programs like that. And in some particularly high demand fields like AI, you've got half of the workforce in AI, one of the fastest emerging uh, fields, half of the workforce is foreign born and half of the graduate students in fields that lead to AI are foreign born. So we're going to come back to um, some of the whys in just a second, but I just want to mention that oftentimes people will say, well, part of the reason why there's so many uh, foreign-born graduate students is because of the money factor for the universities. We'll come back to that. Uh, And then also there's always a question about uh, wages in terms of who uh, is is taking jobs um, in these very, very um, hard-to-fill fields. So those are. I just want to say that we're going to come back to those in a second. But so tell me um, a little bit more about these four words, the U.S. immigration system. Like, what, What's going on there that's making it so difficult for folks that we keep saying we need to fill jobs to stay? Well, it isn't news that the U.S. immigration system is, is fairly dysfunctional. 
we're speaking here about a very small corner of it, which is uh, immigrants with skills in areas of high demand. And the, um, the process for them to be able to stay is very, very difficult. Uh, and that uh, another really important point to, to make is that people still want to come to the United States. Right. They want to come to the United States because in tech fields in particular, because the United States offers significant amounts of venture capital, uh, lots of opportunity. Uh, and and we make it really really hard for those those people to to come and stay. We have heard and and your listeners will have heard about a lot of layoffs at big tech companies, but there remain huge numbers of openings for people in those fields in smaller companies in the IT department of a of a non tech company. So these are still areas where we need talent and we're th- and we're sending it away. Mm. Well, I want to. Um go through an example uh, from a particular person about exactly what you're talking about, both the challenges in staying in the United States after receiving a U.S. degree, um, and then the options that these folks have, which is what you've reported on, John. So in 2018, Sudeep Dutta moved from India to the United States to get a master's degree at the University of South Florida in Tampa. He's a data analyst, and his wife, Suchi Bakshi, was already studying in Tampa. Our plan was like to study and gain knowledge because U.S., as you know, the university and the research department are very, like, very detailed, very, they have a lot of funds, they have a lot of different projects. And after we gain the knowledge, get the degree, and then utilize my knowledge in the work field because there are so much opportunity in U.S. on particularly in these niche skills. Well, as Sudeep says, they wanted to stay in the United States and work. When his wife Suchi graduated, she applied for an H-1B visa, which allows a person to work in the U.S. for up to six years. But two things must happen first, as John Marcus mentioned. An employer must agree to sponsor the applicant, and she has to go through the H-1B visa lottery system, which had, at one time, a one-in-four chance of picking Suchi's name. Okay, so Suchi had three tries at the lottery. On her second try, she got picked in 2019. Meanwhile, her husband Sudeep was still studying. He graduated that fall and applied for the OPT, or Optional Practical Training Visa, that temporary work visa that allows him to work while he entered the H-1B lottery. Having a master's degree gave Sudeep an advantage, but it's still a lottery. I was like very optimistic, like, okay, my wife, she got it. I will also get it. I will also get it. Don't worry. But immigration and things are very like tense and very like uh, you are not sure what will happen. You will get or you will not get the, uh, in the lottery system. So there is no like 100% surety, right? And and another issue was since we're, we were having like by that time, we were having like eight, 10 years of experience and me and my wife, we were thinking of planning to start a family also we were not able to do that because we don't have that surety so it was always a stress and it was always like uncertainty in april 2020 sudeep found out he didn't get picked so he applied in the lottery again his u.s employer wanted him to stay with the company but didn't see many options if sudeep did not get that h1b his employer didn't see working from india as a viable option and neither did sudeep because he and his wife haven't lived in india since 2013 They really liked the United States and wanted to stay. Well, on April 10th, 2021, the lottery for Sudeep's second attempt at an H-1B visa was drawn. 
and i remember in my office in my company the lawyer they logged in and they checked and they said no your name is not there and we have like a rental apartment so we don't know if it uh, we get to renew or not so these are all uncertain things and was not a good day <laughs> His wife still had her H-1B visa, so Sudeep could stay in the U.S. with her, but he could not work. Other option is, again, I have to go back to study, maybe do a PhD. I talked with my professors and everyone, but I then rated myself, I am not a PhD guy. I am not a research guy, a deep research. I am a commercial guy. I work on uh, like a business problems and IT problems like that. So I wanted to utilize that part of my experience. So I was not wanted to go back to PhD. Okay, further graduate study was out. And then... Sadly, that time, my wife, she lost her job. (laughs) And um, uh, her company, they were not doing well. And uh, they laid off a lot of people from their head office. And on H1, you get like 60 days of time to get a new job. That 60-day deadline to keep the H-1B includes getting all the paperwork done and processed. So Suchi applied to dozens of jobs as fast as she could and luckily found one in time. So she could stay, at least for now. So we were through those harsh times. And and that time in the month of April, we thought of, okay, we have to take things on our hand. We have to be controlling. We have to decide. Our company, ERCIS, or all these factors which are not our hand, the lottery. So we have to take control and we have to utilize our education. In other words, the uncertainty of the U.S. immigration system had become intolerable. So the and Suchi began looking for options in other countries. They found that Canada has an express visa specifically for people like them, highly educated and who work in tech. And interestingly, Canada still requires that a Canadian company sponsor the visa, but that was no problem. Sudeep and Suchi easily found a Canadian sponsor. But even more interestingly, the Canadian sponsor didn't even hire the couple. They just sponsored their visa. So Sudeep and Suchi moved to Canada while still working remotely for their U.S. employers. In April of 2022, they moved to Toronto. So when we moved, my wife, she was already pregnant. She delivered here. And, and now we are like, like, we are certain and we are in a positive mind on weekends that there is no immigration thing that we have to worry about or any paperwork which is ending that we have to renew and do all the paper gathering and submit. And then, in December of 2022, just eight months after they moved to Toronto, the Canadian government granted Sudeep and Suchi permanent resident status. And with that, I can switch companies, I can work with these companies and not to rely on employer to file my work authorization, then only they will hire me. So that power gave me back. It's like a freedom, (laughs) I would say. Meaning Sudeep Datta, his wife Suchi Bakshi, and their son plan on staying in Canada for the foreseeable future. And John Marcus, you're just nodding your head in disappointment there. I mean, look at look at that case and listen to the to the hoops they had to jump through trying to stay in the United States. So what ha- help happens ultimately is that we've educated this couple to go and apply their skills in another country that competes against us. And what's even more interesting, and this is why your story was so compelling, when we come back, we'll talk about it, is that other countries are actively 
recruiting these folks. Aggressively, Aggressively recruiting these recruiting. folks. Aggressively recruiting. OK. So John Marcus is with us today. He's higher education editor for The Heckinger Report. And he's written a fabulous, fascinating article about why it's not only so hard for highly educated foreign-born uh, students in the United States to stay, but how other countries are benefiting from our broken immigration system. We'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and John Marcus is with us today. He's higher education editor for the Heckinger Report. And John, um, first of all, I just want to get a little update from you on the likelihood of getting an H-1B visa in in this country right now. When we heard Sudeep's story at that time, it would... With the lottery, it was a one in four chance, but it's even harder now. We haven't raised the maximum number of people who can get an H-1B visa in 30 years. And the result of that is, and this is a to the credit of, of you know, our economy and, and the number of people that want to come and work here. So many people applied for an H-1B visa this year that the number who were accepted fell to one in seven. Okay, so it's even harder now. But that's because demand is still really high. Demand is but, still – people do want to come to the United States. But you also just said we haven't actually raised the number, the cap, in 30 years? It's set by Congress and it hasn't been raised since the 1980s. So it's not a percentage. It's a, it's an actual it, number. It's an actual number. In 30 years, even though uh, – I mean, as we've been talking about, in some of these sectors, the demand for talent is through the roof and they cannot fill jobs. In the United States, but as we're going to discuss in a moment, in other countries, they've recognized this and have adjusted their immigration systems accordingly. Okay. 30 years. Most of the companies that are looking for people right now in the United States didn't even exist back then. We haven't changed anything about our immigration system, really, not in 30 years. Nothing major. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll come back to that. Um, so you've written about these new talent visas in different countries. So other countries are seeing an opportunity here. What are their talent visas? So this is what got us interested in this topic is that we've seen other countries, some of them all equally hostile to immigration, such as the UK, that have introduced talent, global talent visas to attract precisely the people that they need in tech and uh, the other big uh, d- uh, occupation is in healthcare. So uh, not only have they introduced these kinds of global talent visas for immigrants in general, but they are going very specifically after graduates of our best universities and colleges. 
in the UK. So the countries that are doing this most actively are Australia, Canada, and the UK. Other countries are doing it too, uh, Portugal, France, and Singapore. But they are a little bit less attractive to immigrants in these fields than those other than we are and these other three countries. In the UK, they introduced a visa with a terrible name. It's called the High Potential Individual Visa, <laughs> which sort of makes you wonder what the rest of us are. But the the visa allows you to immigrate to the UK if you have graduated from 40 of what are considered the best universities in the world. Not surprisingly, 21 of those are in the United States. And so they've made it very easy for graduates of Stanford and Harvard and MIT to come and, and, and matriculate or sorry, come and immigrate to, to the UK. In Canada, 40,000 graduates. And, you know, you just gave us an example, Sudeep's example. He's one of 40,000 graduates of American universities that have come to – that have immigrated to Canada. Uh, Australia, they have a global talent visa. They go to job fairs at universities to recruit international students, foreign-born students to come to Australia. They, 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 they like, come here? And they're, they're, they go to campuses, they go to, you know, Carnegie Mellon or whatever and just say, hey, we know you're going to have trouble getting an H-1B. Come to Sydney. They advertise for this. Uh, there are billboards in Silicon Valley advertising the express immigration system that you mentioned in Canada. Uh, we'll hear, I think, a little bit more about that later in the program. And, yeah, th these countries are aggressively recruiting graduates and, and kind of happily recruiting, almost with a smile on their faces. I witnessed it when I went to report this in the UK. They're laughing at how they are recruiting these highly skilled immigrants that we're training and to a degree subsidizing. So Sudeep went to a public university. Even though, as you point out, international students are recruited by universities in part because they pay the full amount, there's still a public subsidy. And so, and if they are teaching assistants or uh, doctoral candidates, they're paid for those jobs, and then we let them leave. Wow. Okay. Well, I want to go to London now, briefly, uh, where Nicholas Rawlison uh, joins us. He's a partner and head of business immigration for the London-based law firm Kingsley Napley. Nick, welcome to On Point. Uh, hi, Megna. Thanks. Are, are you one of those people who's laughing at the U.S. immigration system? Yeah, I, I have to say I'm sort of bemused, really, at how uh, dysfunctional it seems and, and how, despite that, people still want to come to the U <laughs> to the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess there's some hope for us there, uh, at least. Yeah. But, okay, so tell me, what is it uh, that that you do for business immigration at Kingsley Napley? Yeah, so I run a team of about 40 people, and we act for large corporations bringing people to work in, in the U.K., um, that's all, mainly skilled people working in you know a range of sectors, including financial services, tech, media, the usual the usual suspects. Um, and we we assist businesses in getting people sponsored. So they have to get a first year sponsor license, and then once they have the sponsor license, managing that, and making sure they're compliant, uh, and then getting the visas for the people who want to come over. Uh, they want to sponsor to, to come and work in the UK. Okay, is this under that high potential individual visa that John was talking about? Yeah, we, we've got, you know, the main work stream in the UK for work, employment-based work visas is called the skilled worker visa. That's the vast majority of cases, and that's through sponsorship through, through a company that's registered as a sponsor, and they, you know, can just go onto an online system. Uh, they can get a uh, what's called a certificate of sponsorship, which is like a electronic work permit, and they can get that within a day. 
and then we can apply for a visa for the person and they can usually be in the UK within a few weeks. And that's for most occupations that are skilled sort of beyond sort of school leaver age. So, you know, it goes from, you know, CEOs of companies all the way down to bar managers, you know, so it's a pretty broad system. So that's the main system that people hire, hire foreign talent from. But then we have also these other global talent streams, including the high potential individual visa, uh, which is very useful. Uh, and we also have another global talent stream, which looks to attract the best talent in tech. So we have a tech nation visa specifically geared towards tech talent, both, you know, technical people who are dealing with the products and people running sort of tech businesses and founders of tech businesses. Um, and then we have a whole bunch of other super, you know, talented global talent visas for people who are actors. So if you've won an Oscar, you're straight in. Um, you know, if you've, if you're a, a well respected uh, academic who's published lots of work, then you're straight in. If you've, uh, you know, if you've been, it's a bit like the, the sort of O1 visa you have in the US, but it's it's not quite as uh, document heavy yeah. uh, as the US system. It's not quite as document heavy. Okay. Um, I have to say, I'm not sure I heard you correctly, Nick, because maybe my mind is just so um, sort of uh, imbued with the thoughts of the U.S. immigration system. Did you say that under certain circumstances, like you, you could apply for a U.K. work visa and be matched to a sponsor within a day? I'm not quite sure I heard that correctly. <laughs> so what happens is the, the the employer identifies who they want to bring in, and it could be somebody who's already working for them in one of their global offices, or it could be a completely new hire. And they say, okay, this is the person we want. They don't have to jump through any hoops in terms of showing that, you know, there's a no UK person who could do that role. Um, you know, there's no quotas on these things. You simply go into a system and you input, you know, the person's job description, their salary, uh, you know, the job title, the hours they work. And you submit that on an online system, which you kind of manage yourself. It goes through to the home office. And a day later, the home office will say, okay, that's fine. That meets all the requirements for sponsorship. You know, the person's paid enough. They come back to you the next day. You receive an electronic, you know, effectively an electronic work permit. And with that, you can then apply for the person's visa. And okay. in, the, in the UK, visas are very quick. We can get them in, in the US. We can get them in 24 hours if we want to pay a, a high fee. Um, but you have to time, still pay for it. Okay, Nick, yeah, hang yeah. on here for just a second. So, uh, John, Nick said something really interesting there uh, about how a, a UK employer does not have to prove that there is a, a British citizen, that, that there's no British citizen they can find to fill the particular job that they want the foreign person to fill. That is That does not exist with the H-1B system here? I don't know if that's a requirement. I can tell you practically yeah. that the fact is, and to be honest, in response to this story, not surprisingly, we've heard from a lot of people saying, why aren't we hiring Americans, that we do not have uh, people who are American-born who can do these jobs. They're, as we discussed earlier, they're not going to graduate programs in these fields. Uh, we're not very good at math, apparently, according to the recent tests in K-12. through and so there are the fact is that we do not have Americans who can do many of these jobs. Okay. Um, Nick, I'm curious about something else because it still sounds though that um, the person coming to the UK after you know getting their degree from Rice University uh, in the United States still has to have a UK employer. Um, are, no. are there were you going to say no? 
I was going to say no. So the high potential individual that John mentioned earlier is one of those ones where you don't need a sponsor. You can come in and and all those global talent visas I mentioned, um, you don't need a sponsor either. So uh, we often and the way we get involved in this high potential individual visa from the US is that at certain time of the year when the lottery results are announced, you know, a lot of people are disappointed. The employers can't hire them. They're on their OBTs or, you know, whatever, whatever stage they're at in their immigration journey. And they can't they can't stay in the US on an H-1B because they they can't get into the lottery. Um, and at that stage, if those guys, are, you know, if they're if they're graduating from one of those 21 universities that John mentioned, they've got a free pass straight into the UK. And we, you know, we can just get them straight onto a visa. They don't need sponsorship. They can come and they can be here. Um, and they can be in the UK uh, doing what they want to do. In many cases, the US company will have a London office. You know, it may not already be a sponsor, um, but if it's not a sponsor, it's very easy then for that individual to come and work for the US company, you know, for a certain period of time and then consider going back to the US at some stage in the future when they meet the requirements to be transferred back under different different work categories. Okay. Visas. Uh, John, I'm going to let you jump in here for a second, but I just want to read the name of some of the universities that we're talking about, um, Nick, that the UK has identified in the United States. The University of Washington, the University of Texas at Austin, University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, University of Pennsylvania, University of Illinois at uh, Urbana-Champaign, um, a bunch of University of California's, Berkeley, Los Angeles, San Diego. Uh, then, of course, we've got the, you know, the, the big marquee names, Stanford, Princeton, Northwestern, New York University, MIT, Caltech, etc., Cornell, Columbia. Um, wow. John? Why, aren't, why, aren't, why don't we want to keep those, those graduates? I, it's kind of mind-blowing. Well, the thing is, is that as as Nick is describing, I'm not sure I know of a work-based visa in the United States where you do not have to have a sponsor. This is a this is a a, like a a long-standing presumption in the United States that we haven't been able to budge. You do have to have a sponsor with a uh, with an uh, an H-1B, and and the problem with the, the OPT that you mentioned earlier is you have graduates of these institutions. Often there's a delay. It's hard to find out exactly how long the delay is, but the delay was exacerbated by COVID. You graduate you, or you've applied for an OPT visa, you don't have it yet. So you have no income. You have uh, expenses like rent, and Sudeep gave you an example of that. You don't have insurance, health insurance, once you've graduated from college, uh, in, ex- unless you buy it yourself, which is expensive. And so the longer that goes on, the less incentive that we have for people to stay. And so they begin, Nick mentioned, and when I met with him in London, he said around now, graduation season is when he begins to hear from people who have graduated from American universities who presumably would have stayed in the United States and are now reaching out or being referred to him to come to the UK. Okay. Now, Nick, I I wanted to take a quick step back here because um, obviously Britain has had um, and even continues to have a very contentious domestic view about immigration, similar to the United States. I mean, Brexit was one of the things that was fueled by anti-immigration sentiment uh, in the UK. And yet, at the same time, has there been any pushback against these like incredibly light-speed, fast-tracked visas for um, highly trained and qualified workers from elsewhere? Uh, well, 
Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about UK opinion on immigration is that it's very split. Um, so on the one hand, people don't like people arriving in small boats at the border. Same thing as the US, people arriving at the border. And there's a very negative uh, view on that. But on the skilled migration side, you know, the UK public doesn't really mind. They're quite happy um, with having skilled people. And, the, the, the you know, recent surveys and polls on attitudes to immigration in the UK have shown that, you know, repeatedly. And the UK is one of the most open and liberal in terms of views on skilled immigration. Uh, it still, you know, is negative on refugees and people arriving in small boats. But, you know, so so the political context means that the government has quite a lot of flexibility in what it does. And it doesn't necessarily want to crack down on, on, on kind of skilled worker routes. Now, what happened this year is that there was a large uh, surge in what we call net migration, the difference between people arriving and people leaving the UK, which was 600,000, which is one of the highest figures ever on his, in history. Um, and that was mainly due to people coming from Ukraine because of the war mm -hmm. and people coming from Hong Kong because we have a special visa um, and, and a big upsurge in, in skill work visas since COVID and since the bottlenecks of COVID have been open. So a lot of people are coming in, but all the government's done is not close down all those routes. It's just actually said, oh, I tell you what, we've got too many dependents of students, so let's restrict that. And they will be doing that next year. So that's the only restriction we're seeing at the moment. But I have to say that the UK has at the moment a very open and liberal skilled migration policy which encourages you know which is very fast and and it helps to get business the people that they need well nick rollison is partner and head of business immigration for the london-based law firm kingsley napley nick thank you so much for joining us my pleasure john marcus um nick said something that i think also from my estimation is similar here in the united states that in fact um, granting uh, visas to highly skilled workers is an area of immigration policy that publicly in the U.S. has less disagreement than other aspects of immigration. Yeah, it's really interesting. And this was explained to me by an immigration expert at Oxford as basically coming down to this. If you live in a country and you're told that there'll be a special visa for people that are quantum physicists, you don't care because you're not a quantum physicist. There's There's more antipathy to immigration among people who think that that there might be someone admitted who can do the same job that uh, that that person's doing at a lower at a lower wage. So in fact, skilled immigration doesn't have a lot of pushback in the UK. I should also mention one important point. The Global Talent Visa or the Tech Nation Visa that Nick referred to, about 4600 people have been admitted to the UK through that visa. And as you just heard, uh, in the, just the last year there are 600,000 net migration, uh, essentially immigrants to the UK. So as you can see, it's a very small number, mm -hmm. but it's a symbol and it's a signification that we're willing to take you. And as one of the immigration experts in the United States said to me, what signal are we sending? Well, John Marcus with the Heckinger Report, stand by for just a moment. When we come back, we're going to talk more about how other countries are taking advantage of the fact that uh, highly skilled, highly educated folks, foreign-born folks who were educated here in the United States are having trouble staying. So more in a moment. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. 
From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Just a little heads up on something we're working on for tomorrow. It's going to be a really fascinating conversation because we will be talking with Ula Oberman. You haven't heard of him, but you know what he does because he is TikTok's global head of music. He's the guy in charge of TikTok's program of finding new talent on its platform and creating the next generation of music Stars. So what question do you have for him on TikTok's role in the music industry or about how mu- music creation works now? You can record your question in the OnPoint Vox Pop app, which you can download by searching for OnPoint Vox Pop if you don't already have it. Or you can call us and leave your question uh, at 617-353-0683. That's 617 353 0683. And given TikTok's role uh, in pop culture and, again, new music creation, I hope you have a lot of questions for Ula Oberman. It'll be a fascinating conversation tomorrow. Today, we're joined by John Marcus. He's higher education editor for the Heckinger Report, and he's written a fascinating article headlined, With New Talent Visas, Other Countries Lure Workers Trained at U.S. Universities. Um, And John, I just wanted to share a quick story that we got from another On Point listener. This is Siddharth Krishnamurthy from Pasadena, California, and he called to tell us about his journey trying to stay in the U.S. long term. I have been in America for 13 years. I have a Ph.D. in aerospace engineering from Stanford University. And I'm no longer a student, but I'm still struggling with the immigration system and still waiting for my green card, which has made life pretty difficult because there's so much uncertainty. Yes, there are people here who are highly qualified and also work in the national interest, as I think I do, and are actually kept out of America and actively pushed out. And, and this hurts American interests, but also at the heart of it is a very human story where someone's life is actually severely disrupted. Because having lived here for 13 years, it's very difficult for me to relocate my entire life and find a whole new life in another place. So there we have an aerospace engineering PhD who wants to stay. From Stanford. From Stanford, exactly. Okay, so um, again, I want to, your article just really opened our eyes in terms of the advantage that other countries are taking um, with this, um, these hurdles that uh, uh, American educated folks are having difficulty clearing here. So, John, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, yes, we have seen mass layoffs at Amazon, Meta, Twitter, some of the Silicon Valley giants, but those mass layoffs have really nothing they're not going to change the trajectory of the demand for tech workers because, um, actually, you said this earlier, at least half of all new tech jobs are in, com- in companies 
outside of the tech field because technology is just so important for every company now. Uh, in fact, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the demand for computer and IT jobs will continue to grow by an estimated 15 percent by 2031. And I just love numbers, John, so we're going to do more here. According to global consult- the global consulting firm Manpower Group, 80 percent of employers in IT worldwide say they're struggling to fill jobs. And again, in the U.S., employers say they cannot find enough Americans with the right qualifications and experience. So that's an important uh, factor to emphasize. So they're looking to hire foreign-born workers who were educated in the U.S., but the immigration system, excuse me, is a major hurdle. That's where Mark Pavlopoulos comes in. He's the CEO and founder of Syndesis, a company that keeps U.S.-trained and educated international workers at American tech companies by moving them to Canada. So my conversation with the company is what happens when they when they go back to home country, which 70% of the time it's going to be India. And the U.S. company response is almost always the same. It's unfortunately, we will have to terminate this worker. With time zone issues, it's too far away. We will lose this worker. We will lose their expertise. We will lose it somewhat, an important member of the team. And, and that's always what the U.S. company is facing. Then you go to the worker and it's like, their American dream is gone. All the hard work, is out the window. They lose the job. They lose the ability to stay in the U.S. They lose everything they've built. So you're you're talking to two parties who are facing a complete loss. Mark is an American. His company, Syndesis, is based in Canada. He focuses on small to mid-sized companies that don't have international offices already. So Syndesis sponsors these workers and becomes their de facto Canadian employer so that the employees can move to Canada and work remotely for their U.S. companies. Still your same job, your same title, your same paycheck, your same U.S. boss. We're just handling your Canadian employment. From then on, we'll be your legal employer. But why Canada? Well, just like we heard with the U.K. before, the biggest reason? Speed. I walked them through Canadian immigration. I said, look, I said, let's picture the spreadsheet A and B. First, we'll talk about you weren't able to get the work visa. In this case, you will get the work visa. It's 99% of the time awarded. Of course, criminal record and some some health issues may keep you out. But if you qualify, you get it based on your merit. So right away, there's a shock. So here's how Canada works. Here's a, here's your time frame to get permanent residence. Compare that to the time frame to get green card in the U.S. And the person's like, well, I didn't even I can't even get the H-1B. So obviously, green card's not an issue. And then I said, and here's your timeline of citizenship. It's about four, four and a half years from when you land. I'm like, there's your progression. Mark is referring to Canada's Global Talent Stream Immigration Program. No lottery, merit-based, and most people who apply can get the three-year visa in a matter of weeks. And if you're married, your spouse can come and work in Canada, too. The worker can then apply for permanent residency, which Mark says could be granted in six months. When you have your permanent residence, you have the right to work for Canadian companies or remotely for American companies like you're doing now. It's wide open. Everything's Your possibilities are there. So Mark says it's a win-win for workers and employers, but... The loser in this scenario is the U.S. economy, because this person now is a taxpayer in Canada. The IP is still coming back to the U.S. company. So you might say, like, well, the U.S. companies still continue to grow. Your clients are having global access to global talent. They're still... The company maintains their trajectory. But this person now is out of our tax base. If they When they go to start a company, they won't be in the U.S., they're going to be in Canada. Mark also told us that once in Canada, many workers move from job to job and eventually work for Canadian companies. 
Now, from 2017 to 2021, nearly 40,000 foreign-born graduates of U.S. universities were recruited to Canada. And Mark thinks that number will continue to grow unless the U.S. does something about it. I don't see anything happening. I don't see no active debate on this. It's a toxic issue when it comes to U.S. politics. So if at some point you look at it and say 30-plus years of H-1B program and no reforms, if you don't think it's going to change, then the, the mindset of U.S. companies has to change. That's Mark Pavlopoulos, CEO and founder of Syndesis. Okay, John Marcus, tell me, you know, from your reporting, really what you conclude the U.S. loses with its current system. Well, uh, I want to pick up on something that, that Mark okay. just said, that he doesn't see this getting any better, the, the, the number of people that are being recruited to Canada and to other countries. Um, I actually see a different problem. And the problem is that uh, that international students, foreign-born students, will stop coming to U.S. universities. And that's already – there are signs that that's already happening. The immigration numbers are flat or down. They've rebounded a little bit from, from COVID. But even if you take the pandemic out of the picture, we've seen – we used to see steady growth. And then things started to plateau even before the pandemic. There are survey data that suggests that international students – are less convinced, just frankly, as American students are these days too, about the value of getting a degree in the United States because they are seeing and hearing more about the fact that it will be harder for them to stay. Yeah, So, the, 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 but there's differences in the reasons why, right? There are, very, yeah, there are huge yeah. differences in the reasons why. It, it, one reason is it's very expensive. I think that, that reason is the same yeah. across the board, yeah. domestic and international. But, but international students came to the United States in part, not all of them, but in part uh, aspiring to stay. And because they know now that that's very difficult and that other countries are more welcoming to them, and also because other countries are competing not only in the in the immigration visa arena, but in recruiting international students, uh, the United States is no longer the automatic go-to. Another problem for us is that our number one sending nation has historically been China, and because of you know other other issues between the United States and China, those numbers are also going down. That's a $45 billion a year hit. Uh, that is the economic impact of international students on American universities and their communities. Because – and their communities. Because they're, they're paying to go to the universities and they are in those communities as well. Yes. Well, we're sitting in one of the communities where there are a lot of international right. students and you only have to look out the window of this building to see a lot of international students who bring wealth to the community, who drive nice cars, who pay the full tuition. Um, and that is a, uh, a, a problem for universities, who, which already have a lot of other problems with their enrollment, whether international students will still feel that it's worth their time to come here. Now, John, you had to make it specific to what we see around us in the greater Boston area, because the flip side to that is every time I see a foreign student, and I'm just going to speak my truth here, who's driving a Maserati on Commonwealth Avenue right outside the On Point Studios, I think to myself, well, okay, if that person didn't come, I understand it would be a financial hit to the university, but isn't there a counter-argument to, well, wouldn't that then be a spot for an aspiring American student? Assuming that there were aspiring American students in, in enough of a supply that universities were seeing you know, more applicants. And in fact, enrollment at universities, domestic and international, has been declining now for more than a decade. Okay. So you're saying that there's, there isn't They're like not a, taking... There's not an adequate K through 12 pipeline in the U.S. for for these these undergraduate and graduate 
spots? Well, two things are happening. Uh, fewer high school graduates are going directly to college after finishing high school in the following fall. That number is down nationally by seven percentage points from a peak of 70% to about 63% now. Uh, in some states like Tennessee and Indiana, it's down 12 percentage points. That's the question of value. The second issue is demographics. Mm -hmm. We begin to run out of 18-year-olds in 2026, 18 years after the 2008 recession, which is when people stopped having as many children. So those two things are conspiring to really hurt American enrollment. Um, so not to digress too much from our conversation about immigration, but international students are not necessarily taking up spaces that might go to Americans, nor are all international students, I should point, we should both point out driving Maseratis around <laughs> Commonwealth that Avenue. That is also true. But yes. um, for, for all of those that we see, we also see a lot of international students whose parents work hard to yeah. be able to afford their tuition or whose government subsidize them to come and, and, you know, study in the United States. Yeah. Thank you for saving me from many angry emails. Um, maybe it's just Boston University and Commonwealth Avenue. Um, which is in Boston, folks. But anyway, um, John, so but so that's the potential economic hit to universities and their communities. But what about the U.S. economy as a whole? If we're not keeping these folks, again, just to reiterate the whole point of your story, that have been educated at these same top universities in the United States, and we are not keeping them here to then be workers and potentially, you know, entrepreneurs or business owners of uh, uh, future American business owners. We are pushing AI. Half of the people in graduate programs that lead to AI are international students. We're pushing semiconductor development through the CHIPS Act. We aren't producing enough people to do the brain power that that requires. Um, we are in, in, engaged in an international competition in a knowledge economy. We're not keeping up. Okay. So I need you to take me back to Congress, though, because as we started um, – uh, the the conversation you had you laid out that the H one B program that the cap on it hasn't changed in thirty years. Immigration has obviously been the hot button issue in the United States, but even there, um, you know, if memory serves, Donald Trump himself, well, you know, had said maybe we should have more of a merit based system. And so, if there is some kind of political overlap regarding these. Uh, again, these high-skilled workers that we want to keep in the United States, why haven't we seen any progress? Uh, Donald Trump twice proposed a merit-based immigration system. There have been and are now currently bills in Congress to allow for skilled immigration or to expand skilled immigration or make it or streamline it. Um, they've never gone anywhere. It, I, I'm, I'm not a political reporter, but my sense as an American is that this is just an issue no one is is prepared to step up to fix. I don't understand why. Uh, if we either one of us knew the answer to that question, uh, you know, I think we'd be smarter than a lot of other people that are trying to figure it out yeah. as well. Ugh. Okay. But just to be clear, because um, we were talking about this uh, earlier before the show, John, um, the intent of the Trump administration or when Donald Trump, uh, you know, was touting the glories of a merit-based system may not have necessarily been to maximize the number of, you know, highly skilled workers in the United States. It might have been to draw a contrast between, or let me say that smarter people than 
than me have suggested it was to say we shouldn't allow people who yeah I, it, there's a lot of controversy over the word skills who are we to say what a skill is uh, but to take people with skills in for example tech or healthcare and differentiate them from other immigrants that people may not want to see accepted. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point because every time I've read about merit-based immigration systems, the first bit of pushback that comes is you can't predict what skills you'll need in the future. It's not particularly equitable to say that someone that could afford to go to Stanford should be allowed to immigrate into any country. I mean, that's a much bigger question that has also been raised by activists, including in the UK and other countries where they are uh, welcoming immigrants with what we've been referring to as skills. Yeah. Well, because so, so the the point being also that there's something about uh, fundamental about how the American immigration system has believed what it's believed to have stood for, for, you know, for more than a century that we take we take. This is not necessarily the case anymore, but this is a la- the, the land of immigrants and we'll take anyone who has the drive to want to succeed here. Um, and so by, you know, by advancing any pro- kind of program that might, like you say, produce a little bit of an inequ- inequity there, that might s- sort of strike at the heart of the American immigration story. It's possible, I think, to have an immigration system that can do both, to ha- like Canada does, to be honest, that has uh, – it has a very robust um, – immigration system for refugees at one end and at the other end, it makes it very easy for the kind of people that they need to drive the the industries that are the most competitive globally. Yeah. And meanwhile, while that's not happening here in the U.S., uh, we have people who have gone to the best universities this country has, some of the best in the world, and they're waiting years and they're just giving up and going elsewhere. If they get in at all if they get in at all here in the United States. Well, John Marcus, uh, uh, editor at The Heckinger Report, we've got a link to your story at onpointradio.org. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.